the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about leadership lessons that we can learn from the discord in the Republican Party right now. And then we're joined by Tony Valdez, founder of B Church Ministries, to talk about the B Church Conference, an exciting conference you're going to want to be a part of. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. By myself today, as my co-host Aubrey Sampson is out on vacation this week, hopefully enjoying herself. She'll be back with us on Monday. But we've got a lot of uh, great stuff in the show today. Uh, we are going to talk about a conference coming up here called Be Church Conference, led by Tony Valdez and many other people here in the Chicagoland. Lots of great uh, pastor audio today, so lots of good stuff going on. Excited that you're joining us today. You sports fans out there, today is NFL schedule release day. The Bears are going to open on Sunday night football against the L.A. Rams. My Giants are going to open against the Broncos. And so football, it, it, it's like this time of hope. You see the schedule, you're like, oh, we're going to go. We're going to go. I'll go 14 and three and Super Bowl. Here we go. And then the year comes and it changes. So a day of hope for you, Bears fans. Well, turmoil going on in the Republican Party today. In fact, Liz Cheney was voted out of her leadership position with the House Republicans. And, and as I've been watching this play out, there's a lot that concerns me, but this isn't a political show. That's not my point here. There's a lot of better places that you could go to get political commentary. But I do think there's some leadership lessons here uh, that are for the church, uh, for politics, for everything. And so I thought Liz Cheney, amazing. she gave a uh, a speech last night on the House floor. We're going to listen to a couple minutes of it or a little bit of it. And uh, not surprisingly, most of the Republican delegation walked out before she started speaking. You could just see the tension. Uh, and so here's what I want to do. I want to listen to this uh, and then talk about some leadership lessons uh, that we can talk about, not so much the politics, but what do we learn about leadership? Let's listen to what Liz Cheney said last night. Today, we face a threat America has never seen before. A former president who provoked a violent attack on this Capitol in an effort to steal the election has resumed his aggressive effort to convince Americans that the election was stolen from him. He risks inciting further violence. Millions of Americans have been misled by the former president. They have heard only his words, but not the truth, as he continues to undermine our democratic process, sowing seeds of doubt about whether democracy really works at all. I am a conservative Republican, and the most conservative of conservative principles is reverence for the rule of law. The election is over. That is the rule of law. That is our constitutional process. Those who refuse to accept the rulings of our courts are at war with the Constitution. Our duty is clear. Every one of us who has sworn the oath must act to prevent the unraveling of our democracy. 
This is not about policy. This is not about partisanship. This is about our duty as Americans. Remaining silent and ignoring the lie emboldens the liar. I will not participate in that. I will not sit back and watch in silence while others lead our party down a path that abandons the rule of law and joins the former president's crusade to undermine our democracy. We must speak the truth. Our election was not stolen, and America has not failed. All right. So uh, she knew she was going to be out and uh, wanted to get her word in. And and what's interesting is she's going to be replaced uh, by uh, Republican uh, Representative Stefanik, who actually was much less uh, in line with President Trump than Liz Cheney was. But Liz Cheney has come out and said uh, she's talked very strongly about what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, about the lie, in her opinion, of the election being stolen uh, and the damage that that the uh, continued loyalty to Donald Trump is doing, the damage it's doing. Uh, to the Republican Party. There's even talk in the New York Times today or yesterday about there being a movement of Republicans who want to start a third party apart from Donald Trump. You know who loves this right now is the Democrats. Uh, but there is this fissure and it all centers on Donald Trump. And uh, here's the leadership lesson for me. We do need to be careful in churches in politics, in business, whatever else it might be, putting all of our hope, putting all of our eggs in a uh, in the basket of a person. Our hope is not in people. Uh, now, if you think Donald Trump best represents your ideals, your uh, what you believe, then so be it. Support him. But there seems to be almost this cult of personality that happens in churches as well. We talked about it yesterday in the Mark Driscoll story. Uh, or Ravi Zacharias or however many of these we've done when it becomes about a person, a personality that is super dangerous, that it's got to be, uh, uh, say in politics, it's got to be about the truth and your ideals and what you stand up for. Liz Cheney said, I'm standing up for truth. Uh, and she has been kind of kicked to the curb, but in churches, we can't put our hope in the pastor. We can't put all of our hope in this dynamic leader because we've seen over and over and over again the damage that that causes. And so sometimes you can watch these things going on in politics and go, okay, I, I, I see that in the church. I see that in other places. And there is a lesson to be learned. I don't know enough about politics to know if Liz Cheney's good at her job or not, if this was the right move or not. I do struggle as someone who's voted primarily Republican in my life. I, I certainly struggle with the uh, the loyalty, uh, it seems like an undying loyalty, an unwavering loyalty to former President Trump. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out going forward in the Republican Party. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined by Tony Valdez. He is the founder of B Church Ministries. We're going to talk about the B Church Conference that's coming up later in July. It looks like a fascinating conference. You're going to want to stay with us as we talk to Tony next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. And we are thrilled to be joined on the phone by Tony Valdez. Tony is the founder of B Church Ministries. And we're also going to talk to Tony about an awesome conference that's going on at Community Christian Church on July 30th out in Naperville 
called the B Church Conference, and you can get tickets for this conference at bchurchconference.com. So, Tony, great to have you. Hey, man, before we get into the conference, tell me about B Church Ministries. What is the ministry, and why did you start this ministry? Brian, thank you so much uh, for having me on the program. Yeah, I am a former pastor. I planted and launched a church back in 2010 in Miami, Florida. My wife and I, we faithfully uh, pastored that church for eight and a half years before relocating to North Carolina with a job transfer. Mm. Um, And in the midst of it, I was just passionate about really uh, the church engaging more in their communities and not just being a quote-unquote attendees and yeah. filling out the blank on Sundays. So B Church Ministries really exist to just connect the church, encourage the church uh, to engage in their communities and be the church as the scriptures yeah. teach. Um, yeah. And so what we do is we just try to connect um, folks to amazing ministries and organizations, not just locally, but also nationally and internationally, and uh, if the Lord just stirs their heart, they can get plugged in, serve, and just get connected with whatever stirs their heart and they're passionate about. That's awesome. Do you find that most churches, like you said, you're a pastor, uh, do you find most churches don't want to be connected to their community or just don't know how, and therefore you're helping them with resources? What do you think it is for most churches? Yeah, I don't necessarily think that they don't want to. I think every pastor really has, I would think most pastors have a heart to really serve and get plugged into their communities. Um, and I just think that many times we're just caught up with Sundays coming and there's mm-hmm. a small group attending and then there's a, a midweek service. And then now in this uh, pandemic world we live in, you've got to make sure your your tech side is all set up and squared away. <laughs> so there's a million things on a pastor's plate that, he, that, that they're going through. And really at the end of the day, uh, you know, there's ministries surrounding uh, their area where really folks in their congregation can say, yeah, you know what? I am passionate about feeding the homeless. We don't necessarily have to create a homeless ministry. Why don't we just get plugged into the one that's been doing it well for the last 20 years? Hmm. And so our prayer is that by doing these events and conferences, the Lord will just stir our hearts to just really have a more of a connection with him um, Chicago, our event that we'll talk about in a minute, uh, we're, we're calling it and the theming it is he must increase, hmm. meaning it just has to be more about Jesus. Right. And so, uh, the less we focus on ourselves and have the heart of God, I think the heart of God is to really go out of your way to talk to people that sometimes people won't talk to. Let me just say this, Brian, real quick. Yeah. It just brings me the story of John four, when Jesus re- went out of his way, the Bible says he had to go through Samaria, you know, the scriptures. That's right. And he met the woman by the well by himself. He was a man, not supposed to be talking to a woman. Lunchtime is probably high noon. And he went out of his way to talk to one woman. And because of that conversation, that woman went out to really change her community. And eventually mm-hmm. that, that town came to know the Lord. So I believe that's the central heart of God for us to find ways to connect with those that most people don't even want to think about connecting with. That's great. That's great. Again, the B Church Conference is coming to Chicago on Friday, July the 30th. It's going to be at Community Christian Church in Naperville. And it looks like a real exciting conference, Tony. Could you just tell people, uh, tell them about the conference? What can they expect? What's kind of the format? Talk to us about the B Church Conference. Yeah. So it's a one day event. Doors open at 8 a.m. Worship starts at 8.30 a.m. 
The event uh, concludes at 5.30 p.m. You're talking about seven powerful speakers that are going to be there at the event. Um, Dr. Caroline Leaf will be speaking. Former Major League Baseball player Daryl Strawberry will be there. Um, Kim Walker-Smith will be sharing her powerful testimony from Jesus Culture. It's just a really, really cool event. Carlos Whitaker uh, will be speaking. And then we got worship with Derek Johnson from Jesus Culture and Reva Henry, who worships at Bethel Church in Redding, California. So it's a one-day event. Um, come out and get refreshed. Um, if you are a senior leader at a church, bring your staff, bring your, your group to come hear these amazing speakers to just get ignited again. And the reason I say ignited again is because, you know, we've been living in a Zoom world for the last um, year and a half, maybe. That's right. Um, and so I, 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 I think if you feel it's safe, I think if your your staff, you feel comfortable with coming to the event at the end of July, which I hope and pray everything will be fine by then. It'll be a lot less um, what we're seeing today. Um, just come on out. Come get refreshed. Um, hear these amazing speakers. A move of God I know will, will happen and and at the same time, you're also going to learn about some amazing ministries in your own backyard. That's great. Again, that's on July the 30th at Community Christian Church. That's the Yellow Box in Naperville. Uh, you could go to bechurchconference.com. That's B-E-B Church Conference. Uh, com And Tony, talk to us about that theme. I find that fascinating. He must increase. Uh, why do you guys choose that as the theme? And, and maybe talk to us a little bit about the verse right there where that comes out of. I think it all starts with uh, what are our motives in our everyday life? Um, is, is, is my motive when I wake up every morning to make sure that um, I take care of everything in my life first and then I come to God? Mm. Or is he the first person that I come to every morning um, and just thank him for just giving me another day of life? I think that there needs to be an awareness of the presence of God in a believer's life. And that awareness has to stem from how is your personal relationship with the Lord? And I really don't care if you're a pastor or a bishop or an apostle or what have you. I, I don't. It's not about the title. It's about your personal relationship with Jesus mm. Christ. Mm. And it's personal, Brian. Um, I can't tell you yours. You can't tell me mine. I've got to spend quality time with the master every day. And he must, he must become, he must increase in my life where I am constantly aware of his presence in the mm -hmm. room. Um, and I don't mean to get over spiritualized here, but I just feel that I believe as a church, we just need to have uh, an attention where he becomes the central focus on our everyday life. And it's not about us. And so yeah. when John the Baptist said he must increase and I must decrease, John had a pretty good ministry at the time. That's People right. People were coming to John at the time. They were getting baptized and he was calling the, the, pretty much the community to repentance. But when he saw Jesus walk onto the scene, he realized that the shift had to occur. And it wasn't about him. It now became more about Christ. That's a good word. That's a good word. Tony, uh, while I have you on, I'd love to ask this question of pastors and mm -hmm. ministry leaders, just that there are people out there right now who are struggling. Like you mentioned, we've been, yeah. you know, this pandemic for 15 months. Things are so different. Could you just speak a word of hope uh, to the people listening right now who are just struggling to find any hope in their life right now? Let's remember, sometimes we do very common prayers that I think the Lord is probably saying, I've already said I would take care of that. For instance, we say that, God, please don't leave us. Well, and the Bible says he'll never leave us or forsake us, right? And I think that what we have to remember is going back to his word and believing his promises, really believing his promises. Um, I can tell you um, that 
it's one thing to read the word, but it's one thing to believe the word mm. um, and to mm-hmm. really live the word. That is a daily thing. That's right. Uh, in my life, I have to read that Bible and I have to say to myself, not only do I, am I reading it, but I am going to apply it and believe it. And I want everyone here to know that's listening that God has not and will never forget you. He will not. As long as you've got breath on this earth, you've got a grand purpose. And I know that we hear that a lot. And people are probably wondering, well, what in the world is my purpose? Mm -hmm. The closer you remain to Jesus's heart, let's not forget John, who just laid his head on the bosom of Jesus at the Lord's table. That's a spiritual understanding that when we are communing with God and we're spending time with him, let's lean in and let's lean in to see where he wants us to go, what he wants us to do. He will give us that clarity. So be hopeful and know that, Listen, Brian, I want, to, I want to just tell the folks listening. I lost my job in the pandemic. Mm. I've got three boys. That I have twin two-year-olds, and I've got a, an eight-year-old. Wow. Um, I lost my job. Um, I didn't even know. I'm in a, in a brand-new state um, that we came to as a family, um, not knowing anybody. And yet I had to remain um, faithful to know in that God's promises are everlasting. And so That's I right. said, okay, God, you have me here for a reason and a season. Use me in any capacity and way. Mm. Um, and, and sometimes our greatest strengths in faith are occur from our challenges and our tribulations that we face. Mm. And so when, when, when I hear sermons that are all about you're never going to go through anything, God's got you, don't worry. Yeah. I'm thinking in my head, hold on a second. Jesus says they're going to hate you because they hated me. <laughs> Uh-huh. Like, like you're going to, you're going to, you're going to hate mother and father and sister and brother because of me. So testing and trials are part of the Christian walk. That's right. It, it just sharpens us and strengthens us in, in our, in our, in our maturity with the Lord. So mm-hmm. be hopeful and know that whatever you're facing, it's for the good of God, never for the, for the bad. Ah, it's such a good word, friend. Again, that's Tony Valdez. He's the founder of B Church Ministries. And uh, B Church uh, Ministries is putting on the B Church Conference, and it's coming to the Chicagoland Friday, July the 30th. Uh, at Community Christian Church out here in Naperville. That's the yellow box in Naperville. To get tickets, go to bechurchconference.com. That's bechurchconference.com. Uh, Tony's going to be speaking there, but then also Dr. Caroline Leaf, former Major League Baseball player Daryl Strawberry, Kim Walker-Smith, Carlos Whitaker. It is a uh, a power-packed lineup, and it's a one-day event uh, where we're talking about how how he must increase. And so uh, it's a conference designed to chase after the heart of God and help the church engage in their community. So bring people from your church. Come for that day. Again, that's July the 30th at Community Christian Church. Go to bechurchconference.com. And if you want to follow Tony on Twitter, at Pastor T. Valdez, at Pastor T. Valdez. Tony, it's great to meet you. This was really good. And we look forward to the conference at the end of July. Thanks, Brian, for having me on. It was a pleasure. Absolutely our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Hope that you're having a great Wednesday afternoon hump day as we kind of move towards the weekend One of my favorite pastors to listen to, what's one of the things that we enjoy doing on the show is to introduce you to speakers and pastors and authors and leaders 
who we enjoy, who we resonate with, who we are encouraged, inspired, and challenged by. And one of those pastors is a, a guy by the name of Tim Keller. Tim Keller, he for years was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City uh, and, and was just a hugely influential church, is a hugely influential church in New York City. Uh, Keller stepped down from kind of the day to day pastoring there and now focuses much more on his prolific writing and speaking. He is a real, uh, force when it comes to, uh, the content he provides. And I've told this story often that, uh, I went to a church planting conference when we were going to be starting our church and Tim Keller was the main speaker down at Exponential. And, uh, when he came up, they literally called him Yoda, the reverence that he was shown and he just sat on a stool and just talked. Uh, and it was awe-inspiring. It was unbelievable. One of the many things that Keller regularly speaks on is idol worship. He wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And the purpose of that book is to say that idol worship was not just an Old Testament thing in which uh, we have, you know, golden calves and, and gold statues that we worship to. Because a lot of times when we just read idols that way, we think, well, I don't struggle with that. But Keller's point, and it's accurate, is that actually we uh, we are idol-making factories, as the quote goes, that we have all sorts of idols and, and that all of us are going to worship something. So it's not a gold statue, but it might be a green dollar bill. It might be a position of power. It might be our own pleasure. It could be all sorts of things. And that functionally, we even if we declare God as our God, even if we declare that with our mouth, that oftentimes functionally we have other gods. And Keller wants us to look inward and go, well, who are those guys? What are those idols in our lives? Repent of them and then put Jesus back on his rightful throne. And so uh, with that as backdrop, I want you to listen to this uh, just a lot about two minutes of a, of a sermon of a talk that Tim Keller gave on this. C.S. Lewis wrote a little article some years ago called Equality, and he says, I am absolutely in, in favor of democracy, absolutely, because we're all sinners. He says, because we're all sinners, we need checks and balances. But he says, democracy is medicine, it's not food. It's medicine for what ails us, but it's not food. He says, ultimate reality is not democracy, because you were made to be ruled and if you don't acknowledge Jesus as king, you will serve somebody. You will, you will bow the knee to somebody. You won't admit that's what you're doing. But I think it's there where Lewis says, human nature will be served. If it doesn't get food, it'll gobble poison. You need a king. You will serve somebody. This is your king. Obey him. That is to say, treat him as a king. Do whatever he says, whether you like it or not. Trust him. Treat him as a king. Accept what he sends into your life, whether you understand it or not. Rely on him. Don't say, well, I believe in Jesus, but you really are getting all of your self-worth out of your career. Then the, your career is king. Make, make Jesus your king and expect great things from him. Thou art coming in prayer. In prayer. Expect, treat him like a king in prayer. You know how to do that? John Newton says, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. He's the king. 
I just love that line that if you don't acknowledge Jesus as king, you will serve somebody. That goes back to what we said before the clip. You're going to worship. We are made to worship. None of us ever go through life not worshiping. We can worship ourselves. We can worship our, our family. We can worship money. We can worship uh, notoriety and whatever else, a claim. We can worship God. We can, we're going to worship. And so the question is, who or what are we going to serve? Are we going to bow down before? Are we going to worship? And he says, if you don't acknowledge Jesus as king, you're going to have another king. So I wonder if you agree with that. That's the first point here. You're going to serve somebody. And he goes to say that actually that's the way we are wired as people, that we need a king. Yes, democracy is great, he said, as a medicine to fall in humanity, but it's not food. It's not necessarily how we're wired. I, I That can make some of you uncomfortable, but he says we are wired to need a king, to worship somebody, to worship something that we are, uh, we need a king. And he says the point of scripture is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. That That's what he is. And so Keller says, treat him that way. Don't treat him like Santa Claus off there to do what we want him to do, to help us with what we need. He's just there to serve us. The old saying goes, it's us and buddy Jesus, right? Or Santa Claus. No, he's our king. And so Tim Keller's point is treat him as king. What does that mean to treat him as king? Ultimately, it means that our life falls underneath his lordship, that we obey who he has called us to be and what he has called us to do, that that his ways become our ways, his concerns become our concerns, that just like yeah, that, that to be our king means that he sets the direction of our lives. He says, treat him as our king. Pray to him. I love that Keller said this. Pray to him. Pray to Jesus as if he is your king. Orient your life as if he is your king. See, a lot of us functionally treat ourselves as our king. That my whole life is about me. It's about uh, my advancement, my prosperity, my enjoyment. And actually, functionally, we treat ourselves as our king and Jesus is there to help move that ball along. That's idol worship. Jesus was never meant to be uh, to serve us. We were meant to serve him. He is our king. And so the first point here, and I love these words from Tim Keller. The first point here is you're going to serve somebody who is going to be your king? And I don't mean who do you sing about on Sunday morning. I don't mean uh, what do you even say with your mouth. I mean, functionally, look in the mirror and ask yourself, who is my king? Who am I serving? And then if you proclaim Jesus as Lord, if you proclaim Jesus is my king, then treat him that way. His ways become your ways, even the, even the things you don't really like that he said. Jesus had a completely backwards way of living and treating this world. And he calls his followers, he calls those uh, who claim his kingship and his kingdom. He says, this is the way you live your life. Put others before yourself. The last shall be first. Uh, watch out for the least of these. And, and those types of things. Treat him as king. Take upon his concerns as your concerns. Who is your king? That's what I want you to wrestle with today. Who is your king? You're going to serve somebody. Who are you serving with your life? 
coming up next. Uh, we're going to talk again about our partnership with Food for the Poor. This is an organization that we love, and we are right now trying to help them raise money to literally feed starving children across the globe in Central America, in the Caribbean, in Latin America. So we're going to talk for a little bit about Food for the Poor coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, and here at AM 1160, we're partnering with an organization that we love. It's an organization called Food for the Poor to give food, give hope, and give life. Your gift of $37, that's a one-time gift of $37, will feed a child for six months. And so you do the math, right? $74 will feed two children. $185 will feed five children for six months. And so we want you to join us and help feed children in Central America and the Caribbean by calling 855-901-4673. That's 855-901-HOPE, or you could go to 1160hope.com and click on the Food for the Poor banner. When it comes a time and there is no food, how does she help the children get through that when they when their stomachs are, are empty? I tell them that today we cannot eat, but uh, another day we will have food. Yeah, we need to work in order to, to have food to put in our plates. What she prays, what does she pray to God for? I ask God for help for my children and to give us bread to have uh, each day something to eat. Listening to testimony of some of the residents brings you to tears to know that people are suffering, but in the same breath, they still possess a hope and a belief that God is going to rescue them. So even though I might cry as to their plight, I'm encouraged that even in the midst of what they're going through, that they maintain a faith and a belief that God will come to see about me. And I think one of the ladies said that whatever God starts, he will finish. And God would not let us be out here and not come and get us. So that lets me know that wherever you are, God's going to come and get you. Paul and Anitra, I'm sitting here wearing uh, three bracelets with each of my boys' names on them. And being a mom of three boys, I often feel like I can't keep enough food in the house. But really, when I think about that, like, that's not true. I have access to food. I can go to Target. I can even get food delivery. I don't know what it's like to be a mom literally looking in her kids in the eyes, wondering, am I going to be able to provide for them today? And I love Food for the Poor because you are making that happen. So tell us for, um, you know, the Christians out there, what does the Bible say about giving? What does Jesus, why does he command us to do this? You know, Galatians 2.10 says it best. Paul writes to the Galatian church at the beginning of his ministry there, and he says, all that they asked was that we remember the poor, Mm -hmm. the very thing I was eager to do all along. Mm -hmm. All we're asking you to do today, like Aubrey remembers her three boys, you just remember Marta, a mother whose daily prayer whose daily prayer, God, give us our daily bread. Mm-hmm. That's, that was what she got. She wakes up every morning, mothers like her, every single day. God, how, when are my children going to eat? This has been 14 months in a pandemic. My children do not have a school. There's no more school where they got their only meal. My husband is out of work. I cannot go to work because of fear of contagion. Mm-hmm. And now two hurricanes 
We thought maybe one would be tough enough that we would be able to cobble a life back together. But two, mm. God, when? We're asking you to remember yeah. these yeah. mothers, these right. families right now with your best gift. Maybe you can give a gift of $111, a one-time gift for providing six children life-saving food for the next six months. It's one phone call. Remember this number, 855-901-4673. Or simply go online to 1160hope.com. Click that red food for the pork banner. It's really, really easy to do. And you can, in moments, save a life. Yeah, and uh, Anitra... Uh, why do you work for Food for the Poor? What What is it that grabbed your heart that you said, you know what, I've got to be part of this solution? Because I looked at my life and I thought, I want to exchange my hours mm. for something of impact. Mm. Yes. I had an opportunity to have a, a large audience and I thought, that's not it. I want it to matter. I want not to pass by the opportunities that God puts in my place. I want... The talents you've given me, the gifts you've given me, the connections to be leveraged for change. We tell so many stories about people who are suffering, but it's another thing to see the white flags that they hang outside their houses to indicate we are starving. Yeah. We are starving, whether it's a piece of paper or a scrap of cloth. And so I encourage you, like the Good Samaritan, will you not walk by? You may have so many reasons why you can't stop, but I just ask you, will you stop mm-hmm. and meet this need right now? Because yeah. it is the purpose that God has given you to be a part of the story he's telling around these countries That's right. day mm-hmm. after day. Mm-hmm. And Paul, I remember last time you were here mm-hmm. uh, we asked you this question and it really affected me without this food. What are they feeding their kids? Like I remember we talked about mud. We talked about stuff. What, what are they actually feeding their kids? Mirna was a mother that we met with three small children. Her, I, you know, just, just thinking about it again. And it's been a year since I met, saw her right before the pandemic. She had a stove with boiling water and a top on it. Hoping that her husband would come home with some food. Mm. If not, she would pick leaves off the tree and boil them Mm. and give it to her children as a tea, a soup. And then I looked in the bucket that carried that water. It was filthy, dirty, filled with bugs. And she could boil it as much as she wanted. It was going to make those children sick. That Mm. was guaranteed. Mm. And you can exchange that right now for six months of healthy food for these children with one phone call. Yep. 855-901-4673. That's 855-901-HOPE. Or go to 1160hope.com and click on the Food for the Poor banner. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, what's the correct way for we as Christians to look at politics? And then four reasons that preachers plagiarize. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. You're on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, age-old question that feels like it ramped up even more in 2020 and 2021 now is Christians and politics. How are we as Christians to think about politics? How does it intersect our faith? Where does our, how does our faith inform 
our political passions and our political choices. Because if the uh, 2020 election taught us anything, it is that we are a nation divided around politics, really right down the middle. If you look at the election, 50-50, but we're also a church divided around politics. And, uh, you know, that becomes uncomfortable because we want to be a church unified underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ, not a church divided around, you know, red or blue R or D, whatever it might be. Like we want to have passions about politics. We want to disagree. We want to debate. We want to hold those tightly. Christians are not called to be non-political or apolitical. That's not the call here. But the call is how do we do that while not being like the divided world around the divided country around us? What's the opportunity for the church? How can we function better? As I was thinking about that, I came across a clip this is back in uh, a little over a year ago. So this is before the election. Uh, this is Andy Stanley. It's interesting. This is actually before the pandemic, too, and all that happened during the pandemic. Uh, this is Andy Stanley and uh, from a much bigger sermon. But this is about uh, two and a half minutes on this, that nothing divides like politics. So what do we do? What do we do? I want you to hear from Andy Stanley here first. Nothing divides like politics. And the reason nothing divides like politics is because nothing divides like fear. I mean, you already know this. You've been a victim of this. You can raise a lot of money peddling fear, right? The Republicans are going to take away your vote. The Democrats are going to take away your guns, right? If the president is reelected, you know, the end is near. If a Democrat, a socialist Democrat is, is elected, you know, the end is near. But here's the question. What exactly do we fear? And here's what we fear. We actually all fear the same thing. We all fear loss. Loss of control, loss of opportunity, loss of our wealth, loss of a, the future for our children, loss of our culture, again, loss of our freedom. And here's the thing, just to be super uncomfortable. White people, we all fear what might happen. Our brown and black brothers and sisters, they fear what actually did happen. Because for them, it's not theory, it's history. And in terms of how old the world is and how old civilization is, it is very, very, very recent history. We have an unprecedented opportunity to model for our community and maybe model for our country what it looks like to disagree politically because we are going to disagree politically and at the same time love unconditionally because we are going to love unconditionally. But here's my question. Do you want to do this more to the point this is the tough one are you willing are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of our faith our historic christian faith if you're a christian are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of our faith rather than create a version of faith that supports your politics are you willing to follow jesus even when doing so creates space between you and your party you and your party's platform and you and your party's candidate. And I'll tell you something, most Christians aren't. But I'm hoping that you're not most Christians and that we're not most churches and that maybe we can get this right and we can get this right in such a way that it does something for other churches, our community, maybe our nation. All right, so Andy Stanley wants to say, 
that that the, the goal here is is not for us to be divided, but for the church to look uh, something different. And why do we fear? He says because fear is what's dividing us. And he says that we fear loss, loss of what we want our country to be, loss of maybe what the country was in our opinion, loss of of all sorts of things. Andy Stanley contends here that fear drives our division and that the fear driven by loss. I think that is a really interesting take on his part because we fear loss. And so therefore we fight because it's got, it's got to be the way the country used to be. It has to be that whatever else it might be. And and then I, I want to hone in here. Stanley says we, we should, we can disagree politically. The goal here is not uniformity in the church. The goal here is not that we all agree about everything, but that when we disagree politically, we still love unconditionally. That's what we don't do very well these days. Stanley says, as we disagree politically, we must still love unconditionally. And some of you might be going, I don't love the Democrats. I don't love a Republican, even if they're in my church. Well, that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is, I don't think our political opponents are our enemies, but let's pretend you do. The way of Jesus is love your enemies. It's pretty clear. And so Stanley says, what would it look like for the church within the church, but then also out in culture to love unconditionally those that we disagree with politically? And then he asks the $64,000 question, I think, in his uh, in his sermon here. He says, are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of our faith rather than evaluate a version rather than have a version of faith that supports your politics? Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of our faith rather than create a version of faith that supports your politics? I want you to wrestle with that, friends. Will our faith be the umbrella under which our political decisions and our political discourse uh, falls? Will our faith, the things that Jesus, earlier in the show today, we talked about what's it mean that Jesus is our king? Well, the fact that Jesus is our king means the way that we talk, the way that we live our lives, the way that we treat other people falls under that lordship and that umbrella. And therefore, including our politics, will that be filtered through our gospel lenses, through our faith lenses? Will we treat even our political disagreements through the filter of our faith? Or are we going to create a version of faith that only supports our politics? Are you one of those people that says you cannot be a Christian and a Democrat? You cannot be a Christian and a Trump supporter. Whatever else it might be, are you one of those people? Well, if you are, then you've created a version of faith that only supports your politics. And here's the danger of that. Then it starts to create a scenario of good versus evil, of enemies, and and now we start having this fracturing in our culture and in our church around politics when there is supposed to be unity instead under the lordship of Jesus because he's our king. He's the one that we worship. He is where our hope lies. Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of your faith rather than create a version of faith that supports your politics. A really difficult question there posed to us by Andy Stanley, and one that I want you to wrestle with. What do you think about that? 
how will you form your political kind of paradigm? What does your faith speak into your politics? Does your politics, no pun intended here, trump your faith or does your faith trump your politics? The question Andy Stanley raises there that I thought would be great for us to wrestle with. Well, coming up next, we're going to hear some words from Pastor Rick Warren as he talks about his son's suicide and how even ministry flows out of deep pain. Rick Warren's going to share some of that. Uh, we're going to listen to that audio here next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad that you are with us today. And I wanted to share some audio that I heard recently, and uh, it is from Rick Warren. Many of you, uh, most of you out there know who Rick Warren is, uh, pastor of Saddleback Church uh, out in California, also the author of, I believe, what is the most sold uh, Christian book other than the Bible called The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, Rick Warren is a super impressive guy. I think he might be my favorite interview we've ever done in the two and a half years uh, here on The Common Good as he sat down with us and was just so gracious and just laughed and laughed and laughed. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, Rick Warren also hosts uh, a show called Daily Hope that airs every day here on AM 1160 at 9 a.m. and at 8 p.m. And I would encourage you to go give that a listen. 9 a.m. and 8 p.m., Pastor Rick's Daily Hope airs here on AM 1160. But part of Rick Warren and his wife, Kay Warren, part of their story uh, is within the last, you know, five, seven years or whatever, was the suicide of their son, Matthew. Uh, and a lot of people wrestled with that when they heard that Rick Warren's son committed suicide because, you know, it, it was hard to put together. It's always hard if you uh, especially if you're not familiar with somebody, who, you know, who is uh, who is depressed to that level. It's it can be hard to get your mind around. And, um, you know, he, Rick Warren has been very open about it. And I'm going to play some audio here from a recent uh, television interview he did kind of sharing his testimony about his son's suicide uh, and what that did. And here's why I want to do this, because I think it is so important, increasingly important for the church to have a conversation and do well uh, with and have feel comfortable having the conversation about mental illness and suicide and all the struggles that people feel, because a lot of times in the past, the church has kind of tried to um, push those kind of issues kind of into the corner. Like, I don't know. We can't talk about that. You know, Christians are supposed to be joyful. Christians are supposed to be happy. We have the joy of the Lord. Rejoice always. I say again, rejoice. And so suicide and depression and these types of things, therefore, the thought process went, those must be sinful. Those must be a character flaw. But what we're learning much more as we learn about how our brains are wired and, and, and mental health and all sorts of things is what we're learning is uh, mental health issues are the same as physical issues that many of us struggle with and that the church can be at the front end. I believe Kay Warren said this the other day that the church can be at the front end of offering hope and offering, uh, solutions is the wrong word, but being in this fight, if you will. And so the Warrens have been very out front, very open, uh, spoken a lot about this. So uh, I want to dive back into this. But before we do that, let's listen to some of what Rick Warren had to say. My youngest son, Matthew, struggled with mental illness his entire life. 
And I remember when he was 17 years old, he came to me in tears. He loved the Lord. He had a tender heart, a tortured mind. Tender heart, tortured mind. He led people to Christ. He gave my book out to people. He would witness to people on suicide sites. He said, Dad, it just doesn't work for me. I just can't get the depression out. And when at 17, he came to me and he said, Dad, it's real obvious I'm not going to be healed. That'll break your heart as a father. Well, uh, about eight years ago, Matthew'd come over to our house for uh, dinner one night, and we had a good time. We watched TV, played a few games. There's no problem, no rift. He lived in his own home. As he was leaving, he said, Dad, I'm just so tired. And that was the last we heard from him. Wow. So about 24 hours later, we are worried because what we'd feared might happen someday and what we would pray would never happen. We go over to his house. His car's in the driveway. The door's locked. We don't have a key to get into his house. And we're waiting for the police to come break down the door to find this terrible moment in our lives. And Kay and I are standing on the driveway, hugging each other, sobbing, just sobbing. And Kay reaches down and she's wearing a necklace that has two words that are the words of the title of the book she'd just written, Choose Joy. And I look at her and I say, how do you choose joy when your heart is breaking in a million pieces? How do you choose joy? The police came, broke the door down, found the the inevitable bad news. They're carrying my sons out in a body bag. And I, if I hadn't had a small group, I, I don't know that I'd still be in ministry right now, but that group that I'd been in for so many years, those couples showed up within 30 minutes, 15, 20 minutes on that driveway. And they didn't say anything. They just hugged us, okay? Now, I teach this to pastors all around the world. The deeper the pain the fewer words you use. This is an important thing to remember. The deeper the pain, the fewer words you use. If somebody's just lost a son to suicide, you show up and shut up. There's nothing you can say. It's the ministry of presence. People say, I don't know what to say. Don't say anything. Just show up and shut up. That is the ministry of presence. And so, As I say, your greatest ministry will come out of your deepest pain. I say that from experience. There's not a week go by that somebody famous calls me with either a mental illness issue or a suicide issue. And I'm talking about from the highest of the highest people, personalities in politics and in celebrity. And Kay and I did not ask for this ministry of ministering to families with mental illness and ministering to families struggling with suicide of a family member. I didn't want that ministry, but it's one that God gave us, and I'm not going to waste the pain. So I would say to everybody, whatever your pain is, don't waste it. If you're going to go through pain, you might as well use it to help somebody else out. Pastor Rick there, uh, that was a small clip from a much bigger discussion, and I'd encourage you to go find it on YouTube or wherever because it is well worth your time. But First of all, the amazing ability for somebody to just open up their broken heart, to open up the broken parts of their life and say, listen, 
this is our story uh, because it's going to help people. It's really going to be help people. But much of the larger clip, he tells the background story of his son, Matthew, that, that his son was a was a Bible believing, passionate follower of Jesus. His son led people to the Lord. He did ministry. Uh, this wasn't like uh, anyway, I think sometimes there's a stigma that says, well, what was what was wrong with his son? He must have turned his back on the faith. No, Rick Warren just talked about how his son always struggled from a young age. He struggled with uh, deep depression and, and he prayed and they prayed and others prayed that his son would be healed. And God in his providence just chose not to do so. And his son used to say to him, Dad, I, I don't, I, I'm starting to think I'm never going to be healed. And Rick Warren talks about the amount of time they spent crying, uh, crying out to God and crying with each other. And then it culminates in him talking about uh, the thing that they had always feared and his son taking his own life and how that uh, Rick Warren used the phrase, it broke his heart into a million pieces. And I want to talk to two separate groups of people right now. First of all, if when you hear the story of Rick Warren's son and you can resonate to that point of depression, to that point of struggle, to that point of it's not worth it anymore, uh, I want to encourage you uh, to to get the help that you need uh, to talk to a pastor or a friend or uh, allow them to help you point you to a counselor, to medication, to whatever it might be. The answer is not, ah, good Christians aren't sad, therefore I can't talk about this, or I, I have to feel guilty about that. That's only going to make it worse. God loves you. He created you. He, he loves you more than you know. You were created in his image. In Christ, he calls you his child. And you are not broken. Uh, God loves you. And mental illness is a real thing. And so I would encourage you to talk to somebody and get help and, uh, and do that soon. If you're somebody out there who knows somebody who is struggling, I would, I would encourage you to take some of Rick Warren's um, advice here. One, the deeper the pain, the less you should talk. Just listen. Don't have to offer solutions. Just listen. And if you know somebody who may be struggling, reach out to them. Don't let them struggle by themselves. This is the point of Christian community. This is what it means to be family and community is to be together. And he talked about, Rick Warren talked about the importance of his own small group. How about Rick Warren being in a small group, right? But he talked about the importance the small group played in his life and that they wouldn't have made it. He wouldn't have continued in ministry without it. We need each other. We need community. I'm super grateful for Rick Warren and his wife, Kay, and their ability to share their story and this idea of choosing joy in the midst of the darkness, choosing joy. So a great word there. Again, you can hear Pastor Rick's Daily Hope. Uh, that show airs weekdays at 9 a.m. and 8 p.m. right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Well, coming up next, uh, I want to continue a conversation we started last week about preachers and the problem of plagiarism. And this kind of rise of preachers plagiarizing sermons and books, why do they do it? We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today. 
as my co-host, Aubrey Sampson, is out on vacation, enjoying some rest, some relaxation, some fun. We look forward to having Aubrey back here on Monday afternoon. Last week, Aubrey and I had the chance to talk to a reporter by the name of Bob Smetana, uh, talking about his article about plagiarism, pastors and plagiarism. His article was entitled this, If You Have Eyes, Plagiarize When Borrowing a Sermon Goes Too Far. He says, preachers love to borrow from each other, but the practice can sometimes lead to plagiarism. And what he's talking about, and I don't want to go back into Bob's article necessarily, but what Bob is basically talking about is the what seems to be with the rise of the internet and being able to find other sermons and stuff, is this increase of plagiarism of pastors just just uh, actually just pulling sermons that other people have done and preaching them as their own. And the debate is, uh, when is it just using, um, you know, parts of a sermon? When is that plagiarism? Is it ever okay to pull an entire sermon? Uh, lots of people weighing in on this. It kind of blew up on Twitter, people discussing, yeah, I don't know. This feels wrong to me about all the pastors, people sharing stories about their pastors who lost their jobs. Uh, because they plagiarize. But underneath this conversation is why. Why do pastors plagiarize? So it's not, it goes beyond, is it appropriate at times? Is there a problem? Uh, does this happen? And it moves to, but why would they do it, right? Because I'm a pastor. I'm at Four Corners Community Church in Darien. Uh, and one of the joys of being a pastor, big church, small church, medium church, whatever it might be, one of the great joys for most of the pastors, at least that I know, is preaching. It is opening up God's word. It's it's pouring over it through the course of the week, getting up in front of your congregation on a Sunday or whenever you meet and saying, uh, here's what God has for us today. Let me unpack this text. Let's apply it to our lives. Like that is one of the great joys of pastoring. And so it's always weird when you then hear about pastors getting to the point of plagiarizing, going, I just don't have it in me. I'm so empty or whatever else it might be that I feel like I just need to literally pull someone else's sermon and preach it as my own. It doesn't mean that there's not great things to hear from other people, but you got to at least tell people, hey, this is from Tim Keller or Andy Stanley or whoever else it might be. But why? I, I, I want to get to the question of why. And at uh, a blog post called For the Church, uh, at a place called For the Church, Jared Wilson wrote a post entitled this, Four Reasons Preachers Plagiarize. Four Reasons Preachers Plagiarize. So I just want to dive into this article because I think it's a really helpful list as to why do pastors do this. He says, pastoral plagiarism is recently back in the news, drawing more attention to a problem that won't seem to go away. Every time this subject comes up in social media circles, there appear to always be a few voices interested in suggesting that there's nothing really wrong with the practice that every preacher should decide what best serves his or her own church. Ronnie Kurtz and I answered the kind of wrongheaded thinking, that kind of wrongheaded thinking, and a few other besides in an episode of For the Church podcast. So you can look that up. He also wrote another piece. But one question, he says, Jared Wilson asked, that keeps coming up as well, and one that hasn't been substan substantively answered, substantively answered, I can read, as far as I can see, he says, is why exactly preachers would tempt getting exposed as frauds or even fired for undertaking this practice. 
So he's going to give his reasons. He says, below, I attempt to get to some answers and offer some means of repentance for each. Why might a preacher plagiarize his sermon? Here's a couple reasons uh, that he's going to give. He's going to give four reasons. One, the pastor feels immense pressure to perform. Whether from a congregation expected to be dazzled with the idea of great oratory or from his own internal desire to entertain, some preachers just feel a lot of pressure to be great. The desire to be seen as impressive lurks in every human heart, and pastors are no different. This is especially true in an evangelical marketplace where consumerism and pragmatism rule the day. The sermon is a product, and customers will always go where the best product can be found. If a preacher gets swept up in the spirit of competition, the drive to attract more people than the church across the street or down the road can become an obsession. And if you aren't sure of your own ability to craft a superior product, you might be tempted to steal. If this is what you do, then he says repentance first entails remembering that Christ's kingdom is bigger than our own, that we aren't called to be successful, but rather to be faithful. Number two, the pastor doesn't think Uh, The pastor just doesn't think he or she has enough time in the week to prepare. This is a big one. Some pastors may claim they have resorted to preaching other people's sermons simply because they do not have adequate time in their ministry schedule to do their own work. This is increasingly a reality for both overextended megachurch leaders who are constantly juggling multiple areas of responsibility and small or normative sized church leaders who may operate in a solo pastor model where they are expected to supply all the ministry needs for the congregation. Bivocational pastors or those in similar situations may feel these constraints doubly so. He says, if this is where you're at, depending on your situation, the specifics of your strategy may differ. But in every case where this is an excuse, repentance looks like a significant reprioritization. Basically, reprioritize your life. Say no to things so that you could do this important task of sermon prep. Number three. The people who provide the material he's plagiarizing say it's okay. This is an increasingly common excuse and often used as a reason why it's somehow not unethical or dishonest to pass off another person's work as their own. But imagine your child was caught cheating in his English class. It turns out that he was paying another student to write his essays for him. The reasons are immaterial. Is his turning in someone else's work somehow all right simply because the real writer gave them permission? Of course not. And we'd acknowledge that people saying a thing is permissible doesn't automatically make it permissible in the Lord's eyes. Morality is not subject to majority vote or influencer fiat. If this is you, repent of borrowing your ethics from an unscrupulous people. (laughs) That's pretty good. All right, last one. Why do pastors plagiarize? Number four, it just takes him way too long and feels way too difficult to write original sermons every week. I get it, he says. I really do. As one who preached a weekly sermon nearly every Sunday of the year for years at a stretch, I know it can sometimes be a slog. Some texts are more difficult than others. The pressure to perform can be intense, but some preachers who plagiarize may do so because they simply can't figure out how to put a decent sermon together. They feel overwhelmed by the task and don't know what to do. If this is you, self-inventory is in order And kind of you got to come up with a system and a plan. And this is how Jared Wilson ends. The problem of plagiarism in the pulpit isn't likely to go away, but the spirit can bring conviction wherever he resides. So if he is leading you to reevaluate your own approach to sermon borrowing, don't resist to ignore his promptings. Remember, preacher, God loves you as you are. You don't need to pretend to be somebody else to receive his approval. You may feel like you need to do your congregation, get your congregation's approval, 
But the good news is that you can be the preacher God has uniquely designed you to be, and he will use your efforts for his purposes because his word will not return void. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't need eloquence or showmanship to work. You can trust it. The question is, can you be trusted with it? I thought that really moved the ball forward. Jared Wilson there for the church asking not just, is it okay to plagiarize, which he says, obviously it's not, but why do preachers plagiarize? If you're not a pastor, but you're a church leader, you're part of a church, maybe you see some of these things in uh, your pastor and, and you need to talk to your pastor and just say, Hey, are you doing okay? I think just in a really, really important topic. Well, coming up next, I want to end our show today talking about forgiveness. We're going to do that next year on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for being with us today on this Wednesday afternoon. Today, I want to end the show by talking about the concept of forgiveness. Um, forgiveness can be really hard. Forgiveness can be really difficult. Uh, but it is important. It is imperatively important. There's a a long article here written by Tim Keller, who we quoted earlier about forgiveness and then the necessity of it, but how we are a culture that increasingly is an honor shame culture. And we are increasingly, he calls honor and shame, the new secular religion and that we, we, you know, we don't forgive, we cancel. Uh, And it doesn't mean that there aren't times people because of boundaries aren't supposed to be quote unquote canceled, but 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 that the message of scripture for the church is that we are to be a people of forgiveness just as God has forgiven us. And uh, Keller goes on to say that basically there will be no future without forgiveness. He quotes Martin Luther King, who says, he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power of love. We can never say, I will forgive you, but I won't have anything further to do with you. He says, further forgiveness means reconciliation and coming together again. Those are the words of Martin Luther King Jr. Each of these thinkers, Keller says, com- offers compelling reasons that to be a healthy society, one in which broken relationships can be regenerated, we must learn the value of forgiveness. The most obvious contribution that the church could make then is to recover its own theology and practice of forgiveness, because that will make us truly countercultural as we serve as a witness to the world, right? To discover the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs, uh, that, that's the message. That's Jesus. The fact that Jesus made this discovery in a religious context, right, and articulated it in religious language uh, makes it just it raises the bar for the importance of forgiveness. And so Keller gives us a brief overview. And then I want to listen to a pastor talk about forgiveness. But Keller gives a brief overview of what the teachings are on on forgiveness. He says forgiveness in Christianity is a set of practices, including practices of prayer and of community. Forgiveness doesn't just happen. Uh, it's granted, he says, before it is experienced. And so we, we grow in the practice of forgiveness. And to put it another way, it's a muscle that grows and strengthened. He goes on to say forgiveness, secondly, is always a form of voluntary suffering that brings about a greater good. Forgiveness is always a form of voluntary suffering that brings about a greater good. He says, when you're wrong, the perpetrator 
owes you. It may be lateral, it may be literal and financial, but in any case, he or she has wrongfully robbed you of some good, whether reputation or relationship or health or something else. To forgive then is to deny oneself revenge. It's a commitment to not try to exact repayment from them by inflicting on them the things they did to you. And then Keller goes on to say forgiveness. Third, practices Forgiveness practices have an upward, inward, and outward aspect, and each is crucial. Upward, embracing divine forgiveness. Inward, granting inward forgiveness. Outward, forging a reconciled relationship. This is so important for us to wrestle with. He says, those who won't forgive show that they have not accepted the fact of their own sinfulness. Basically, if we can't forgive, we're showing that we don't understand the forgiveness that we have been shown. Someone that we quote a lot here also on The Common Good is a pastor in New York City, also in the Queens, named Rich Velotis. Uh, Rich Velotis is uh, really worth listening to, following on Twitter, reading his book, uh, all sorts of stuff. I want you to hear a minute of a sermon that he did on forgiveness. Here's my question for you today, and then we'll close. Who do you need to forgive? What's the situation that you need God's grace to work through you? And you realize, in my own strength, I can't do this. In my own strength, this is impossible. But what's impossible for humans is possible with God. I want to give you about 30 seconds or so, 45 seconds, to maybe close your eyes right where you're at. Put the coffee that you're drinking down for a moment. Put the fork down for a moment. And just who is the person or group of people or whatever it is that you just need to begin to move towards forgiveness? Why? Well, it's a demonstration of the gospel and it's for the sake of your own freedom as well. All right. So I I, I thought that that was important to listen to because it brings it home. Who do I need to forgive? Again, some of you have been wronged and hurt in some and abused in some real deep, meaningful ways, some painful, painful ways. What forgiveness is not is just forgetting what happened to you and allowing that person back into relationship with you. That's not what it means. Forgiveness might mean that I'm not going to hold this against you anymore, but I never want to see you and be in relationship with you again, especially for my own well-being. That's okay. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. But Rich Velotis does ask a valuable question here. Uh, who do I need to forgive? What are the faces that come to mind for me when it says, who am I harboring stuff against? Keller ends his article by saying this, we must never give up on each other or on the supernatural potential of Christian community. Jesus has brought, quote, incompatibles together. No wonder we often fight. We must strive to hold ourselves accountable to practice forgiveness and reconciliation. Our mutual love for one another is how the world will see who Jesus is. That as we forgive in the way that we have been forgiven, it becomes a huge um, uh, show to the people around us as to who Jesus is and what he is offering. That it becomes this megaphone of the grace of God in our lives. And so like Rich Velotis asked, who do you need to forgive? Because here's the trick. Forgiveness doesn't often just let the other person off the hook. It often lets us off the hook. It removes the bitterness. It removes the, the bitterness that grows and the anger that grows over time. 
And the famous imagery that people have said throughout time is that like, it's not letting somebody else out of prison. It's letting yourself out. So forgiveness, wrestle with that. What do you believe about forgiveness? How deeply do you understand how much you've been forgiven by God? And who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to walk the path of reconciliation with? It's not an easy topic, but an important one that I thought we should kind of end the show with today. Well, a lot of audio, a lot of great pastors today to listen to. If you missed any of the show, go on back and find it on our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. We're really glad to have you with us again tomorrow. We're going to have Alistair Begg with us for a while. We are really looking forward to that time with him. Until then, we hope that you have a great night. Happy birthday to my daughter, Emily. Looking forward to celebrating tonight. My name is Brian Fromm. We're glad that you've joined us. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.